Hi, I'm Mike Duran. And I'm Peter Rao. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, today, my guest, on our guest on Counterbalance is Peter Rao, my co-host. My co-host is my, my guest. Peter just got back from... There's something deeply philosophical about that, both guest and host at the same time. You, you, I, 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 my mind can't even really fully comprehend it. I'm afraid <laughs> if I spend too much Basically time Cartier. thinking about it, th- th- thinking about it, steam will come out of my ears. Let, let's, uh, what, was I do- what was I saying? Oh, yes, you just got back from Taiwan. And uh, you found it revelatory, and so uh, I thought we'd have a conversation with you about your Taiwan trip. First of all, just welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's a what? pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to have you. Why don't you just give us some of your, what's, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Impressions? Impressions. Give us some of your impressions of uh, your trip to Taiwan. Well, as a Europeanist who flies a lot across the Atlantic, it really begins with flying across the Pacific because crossing the international dateline is a fascinating so you're, experience Hold on, you're, in and of itself. Your big insight is that it's very far away. <laughs> well, no, it's that it's that when you when you when you cross the dateline, you either leap forward into tomorrow or on your flight back, you jump into yesterday. So my ticket in Taipei had me taking off from Taipei thirty minutes before. I took off in San Francisco onward to Washington on the way back. And that is sort of a mind pretzel um, that I found interesting. But also on the flight, I think my first real insight, sitting there at one point, I woke up and I look out and I see Osaka, Japan down below, just south of Tokyo on the main island. And then I looked at those flight monitor displays they have where they show distance to destination, altitude and all the rest. And it was something like two and a half hours to Taipei. And when you fly into Taiwan, into Taipei, Taipei being in the northern part of Taiwan, uh, really almost on approach, you still see the last southernmost Japanese islands. And so Japan looms very large in the strategic consciousness of the Taiwanese. Uh, we heard that after uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August 2022, when the PRC really picked up its uh, saber rattling and uh, we can almost call it outright military aggression against Taiwan, there have been opinion polls showing the Japanese as the top most reliable strategic partner in the minds of the Taiwanese, and um, uh, much more so than, say, the Philippines, which is just south of Taiwan. Uh, the Philippines are geographically connected, but they really don't come up in discussion in the same way. In fact, if you think back to World War II, Taiwan is from where the Japanese launched that famous raid on Clark Air Base in the hours after Pearl Harbor, right. for which... Uh, uh, General MacArthur and Sutherland, his, his aide-de-camp, were later uh, chastised because they didn't disperse the bomber fleet in time. So you would think that the Philippines would, would play a major role in, in Taiwanese thinking, but it's really the Japanese. And and I'd also add there, the Taiwanese tend to vacation more in Japan, it seems, than the Philippines. The DPP had just won the presidential election a few weeks ago, and so campaign headquarters had emptied out, and where did the staff go on vacation? This is kind of the, Japan. This is kind of the civil thing that anyone who's from Taiwan or goes there a lot would know, but you can't know unless you go. Totally, yeah. yeah. I, di- I didn't know that, for example. Not that I'm the world's greatest expert on. Yeah. Uh, so when... when uh, but, but the implication the- also being that, given those islands are so close, and any even blockade scenario, I don't know how you run a military blockade against Taiwan without also cordoning off some of the Japanese island. And I think the Taiwanese believe that 
hopefully the United States, but also the Japanese would be there in extremis. And the assumption for the Philippines is that it might provide basing for the U.S., but nothing more. So let, let, let's 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 stick on this for a little bit. It's not because I'm a Europeanist, and so I'm very superficially informed on this. But no, I kid. Go ahead. Yeah, no, but uh, uh, I I believe that that if you spend less than a week in a place, then you're really you're really the world's greatest expert. That's right. Because you don't have enough information to have doubts about anything. You have strong <laughs> right. impressions, but no doubt. But so, do you? Is it your impression that? That when Taiwanese make decisions and they're thinking about the impact internationally, are, uh, are, are they thinking as much about the Japanese as the Americans? I think they just view the U.S. and Japan as the two big players in the region, both of which are on Taiwan's side. And so uh, they're not really prepared to offend the Japanese or the Americans. Taiwan, we were in the foreign ministry, and there are only a few flags left out front for official recognition. They're constantly fighting off isolation, and PRC attempts to box them out of the international system. And so um, uh, anything they can do to generate attention, engagement, access to the outside world matters a great deal. But I would say that Japan and the U.S. are probably, seems like, in a class of their own. So uh, are the Japan and the United States fully aligned on Taiwan today. Is there is there any daylight between them? I think they're pretty closely aligned. The Japanese do they make open commitments about uh, the defense of Taiwan in in the event that it would uh, it would be attacked? I don't know if they've made any public declarations, but I I do think in or I know in private there's more and more recognition that if Taiwan goes, then China blows out onto the Western Pacific and that becomes a big, the PRC opens up into the Western Pacific and that yeah, becomes... Yeah, they break out of the, uh, the, the become, first time. Breaks out. Uh, becomes a big problem for Japan. So, um, yes. Now, Taiwan has other cards to play than just the Japan-US alliance, but those are the two major ones. It's clear that if China, if the PRC decided to actually attack Taiwan, its air force and whatever navy it has would probably be destroyed right away. It would still have some land forces. But it has this famous silicon shield, which of course matters. Um, that the, being sil- the, the silicon shield being the fact that it's the it's the leading chip. Uh, it's, mu- it's much more than the leading chip. The TSMC is, I think, the most valuable country in company in uh, in uh, in in Asia. The Taiwan Semiconductor Company. It also has a, a smaller UMC and maybe a, sec- a, a third or fourth uh, chip making fabrication company that then leads into the integrated circuit engineering onto the suppliers, then into automobiles, phones, processors, et cetera. But um, I think number two might be Samsung, third maybe Toyota, and then the Chinese Tencent perhaps in the top um, market capitalization. But 80% of the world's chips come from Taiwan. And crucially, the very high-end chips, which really TSMC, um, I think it's worth six, $700 billion of the company. They produce the high-end chips that are going to be important for artificial intelligence and uh, kind of leading edge technologies that might de- dominate or decide the economic competition of the future. So if you go into Taiwan and, and uh, 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 destroy that, you probably, I mean, the Rhodium Group, I think, had a good estimate out. It would sink global GDP by several percent, if not more. But so it, so you, 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 call it, you call it the Silicon Shield. So is there, a, is there an assumption uh, out there? I, I was not aware of this, that, that China will not attack because it would be afraid of destroying that industry? There is that assumption, but there's also, I suppose, the logic that they can't do without it. 
and so that they would want it. Yeah, but but, but that's what I that's what I would assume. Right, but if TSMC is destroyed in an invasion scenario, why would it why would it be destroyed? Uh, because it might be blown up. Wouldn't they take care not to do that? Well, maybe not just the PRC who has that calculus. Ah, ah, I see. So that's a that's a major factor. You've got a devious mind. <laughs> well, that's a major factor, and then. Uh, uh, I think that's in part why the Chinese would prefer almost it's sort of the Belarus model uh, that the Russians have, have played out, which is rather than the Ukraine model of having to violently go in because the country is slipping away to, to be able to co-op, subordinate, insinuate yourself sufficiently into Taiwanese is, society. Is that if I ask you to to describe China's strategy toward Taiwan, is that what you'd say it is? That the end goal is Russia, Belarus? The goal is to take over Taiwan, and the preferred strategy, I think, would be to do so peacefully because it would be less costly, but if necessary, eventually by force. And what are the stages of that campaign to take over Taiwan peacefully look like? I'm not sure, but they just suffered a major blow because— The uh, election? The election was a blow, I think, to the Chinese, to the PRC. This is the— The DPP beat the KMT? That's right. Sounds like the start of a song, but it yes. Um, and the TPP was the third party running. So it was a bit of a 1992 Perot, Bush, Clinton uh, dynamic. And maybe just to back well, up. Yeah, walk us through. So who, who's the DPP, who's the KMT, and who's the TPP? Well, it's it's all connected to Taiwan's history in um, in in every government building. There's a, there's a portrait of Sun Yat-sen. Um, and in fact, if you go on, and I just spent a little time looking Sun at- Sun Yat-sen is a KMT, am I right? Sun Yat-sen is the founder of the of the of the of the Chinese state, um, and this precedes the nationalist communist civil war in China. So, if you go on Chinese TV stations, mainland TV stations, which of course are all propaganda, they actually have very nice things to say about about Sun Yat-sen. Uh, he died in 1925 uh, in Beijing, I think, of liver cancer. But then, subsequently, um, there was, of course, the civil war, and Chiang Kai-shek, who was not revered on mainland China led the nationalist forces against the communists, eventually was defeated and retreated to Taiwan. But what's interesting about this, and this all leads up to the question about the elections, at the time, I think Taiwan's population was maybe six or seven million. So, I'm sorry, I'm still sure. back. So, so, so Sun Yat-sen, I was not aware of this. Sun Yat-sen is a revered, or at least respected, in both mainland China and Taiwan. Yeah. He's the common ancestor. But but Chiang Kai Shek um, is is hated on the mainland and also has a mixed legacy uh, in Taiwan because he was defeated by the communists and then and and then and then uh, repaired to Taiwan. He repaired to Taiwan with something like a million uh, persons, so maybe half a million of his military or six hundred thousand military, and then maybe four or five six hundred thousand civilians. And at the time, the population of Taiwan was six or seven million, I believe. The Japanese had just been kicked out. They themselves had half a million, maybe or so, Japanese colonialists, which were evicted. And um, uh, Chiang Kai-shek always thought he would return to the mainland. So uh, not until he really died in the mid-1970s did he give up on that dream, constantly developing plans for, for an attack on— so, so, so Chiang Kai-shek is the KMT— he is. He's the he's he's the KMT. He's the founder of the KMT. The but Gu- he also he immediately declared martial law, which he which remained in place until the late 1980s, um, and so he's he's disliked by part of Taiwanese society that um, 
adheres to the DPP. I'm which, sorry, I, I realized I'm, that you had things you wanted, but I, no, I, I never all. had all this straight in my head, yep. or like I so haven't had my straight is, in my he head is since KMT. I was a, a freshman in college. Yeah. So, so he is KMT, and he is he is the he is the protector of Chinese culture, right? China coming across across to Taiwan from the mainland, and I was intending to go back. And, and retake the mainland. How did the Taiwanese who preceded the arrival of, of Chiang Kai-shek and the, and the KMT, how did they understand themselves? Were they see themselves as Chinese? And how, do they, how, did, they, uh, how did they react to uh, a million plus KMT people coming and taking over the island? I don't know. I know there's an indigenous population which uh, has been an issue in Taiwanese politics. Mainlanders from like Fujian province just across the strait who have gone to Taiwan separate from the Chiang Kai-shek retreat. Oh, and for, so no, there is for a, no political reason, just economic right, refugees or I right. mean, economic migrants. And But still, if, if you do the math, if there's six or seven million Taiwanese at the moment of the retreat, and he brought a million persons, you meet a lot of people whose yeah. grandfathers were either part of the retreat or part of the civilians that, that you know, grandmothers and grandfathers that, that crossed the strait. But the point is, um, if we talked about the Silicon Shield earlier, there's also a there's also a Chinese cultural shield in that Chiang Kai-shek took all of the uh, the the marvels of Chinese history, the art, the gold as well, by the way, oh. and brought them to Taiwan. So there's a museum in Taipei, which has unbelievable works of Chinese cultural jewels, from pottery to calligraphy, etc. So you know, it's a are bit these like, like the Elgin marbles to the to the to the Chinese? Do they? Totally, and 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 there, there's a, there's a bit of a Hamas thought that crossed my mind. This could be a hospital underneath which you 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 emplace some of your most most important uh, uh, most important military installations. Because the theory is the mainland mainlanders would never bomb um, that museum because of how how valuable and precious it is to Chinese history. Yeah, time to build a military in installation there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Your mind is very devious. Yeah. So, anyways, um, so Chiang Kai Shek and the KMT that therefore have always been the guardians of of China, and they consider themselves wholly Chinese, and um, uh, and they ruled Taiwan for decades, and more recently, the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, has uh, I think under Chen Shu-bian in two thousand won their first presidential election. They are, uh, the, as the name implies, Democratic Progressive Party. They are anti-death penalty, pro-nuclear, uh, anti-nuclear power. But also, uh, oh, so they're when they say progressive, they're, they mean pro- they're progressive means progressive as we understand it. But it also means it also means they believe much more in an, uh, and this is this isn't precise, but more of an independent Taiwanese identity. And so uh, there is this enormous is the thing that tension. matters the most, right? And which is why uh, that's a question. This, it is this very is much the, so. The, the, this is the issue. So is so issue. so uh, so the KMT still um, uh, looks at mainland China as you know one country, whereas Taiwan believes in its own sovereignty. It's not prepared to entirely, you know, cut ties, which would be causes belly for the mainland. But clearly, they believe in independent identity, and uh, the polls are moving in their direction. Now, elections are fought there, like everywhere, over issues like mortgages and housing and so right. forth. But this is the third term in a row, which is unprecedented, that the DPP has won the presidency, even though they lost the legislative won. That's now controlled by the KMT. Now, if I recall correctly... What I read in the in the new in the news before the election, the election was in January, right? So like a month ago, yeah. And the the wasn't the KMT claiming that a victory by the DPP would mean war? 
they 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 uh, they they stood for good relations with mainland China with the with communist China and they depicted the DPP as the as the as the crazies who are going to lead us to conflict is that am I, do I have that right yeah and that that manifests itself in in a couple of ways one is um, for example when when the DPP controlled the legislative wand the parliament which has some purse strings attached to it they would fund like in the national taiwanese democracy fund democracy programs the KMT would interpret that fund as much more appropriate for, say, cross-strait relations dialogue, mm. right? And the second is, while daily there are incursions by the PRC, both via warships and planes of the air, identi air defense identification zone, and then the warships are sailing close to the waters and, and, and really, especially since Speaker Pelosi's visit, up in the ante on, on almost provoking, I mean, they're not provoking because the Taiwanese aren't going to answer, but really testing the Taiwanese, you don't hear about it that much from the DPP because they don't want to substantiate the KMT charge that uh, they're leading the country to war. And so as a result, you have this rather aggressive posture by the PRC, but you don't feel it really uh, in Taipei. Oh, interesting. So they, they, both, both parties have a, an interest in playing it down. Right. The KMT, because it wants good relations with the PRC, and they, there's too many, uh, we have too much alphabet soup here. Uh, the Kuomintang, because they don't want to have, they, they don't want to uh, uh, harm relations with Beijing, and the, and the uh, Democratic People's Party, is it? Progressive Party. The yeah. Progressive, oh, you told us that. Democratic Progressive Party, they don't want to play it up because they don't want to substantiate the claim that they are warmongers. Yeah. Where's the, what about the, T, bring the TPP into it for us. The, the DPP. Um, no, the TPP. The, the TPP, right, is... Um, is uh, a, a small third party. Uh, this is the Ross Ross Perot. This is Ross Perot who controls. I think, uh, if I have it right, maybe the mayorship of New Taipei. I, I could have this entirely wrong, but they they actually performed worse where they're in power. Um, but other than that, they were basically just kind of allowing um, allowing uh, people to project onto them what they wish. Um, but they're not they're not a, they're, they're a factor insofar that the legislative one the parliament. Uh, I believe the DPP ended up with 51 seats, the KMT with 54, and you need 57 for a majority. So they were the holder of the keys for the majority, and they flipped it to the KMT. So the KMT controls the parliament, um, which DPP had, had lost. They did in the previous administration, or in the current administration, hold the uh, parliament, but they no, longer, they no longer will, which has implications for things like parliamentary exchanges, you know, there's like a big Japanese Taiwanese parliamentary exchange program. Is that now going to be? Is there going to be a speaker delegation led to Beijing? You know, I mean, these are all open questions because of the KMT's reputation. And maybe just as an anecdote to illustrate this, when I visited KMT headquarters, um, so you, you your visit on your visit, you went to KMT headquarters and to DPP headquarters. Well, uh, you met. Yes, you, well, you met. We met with. We didn't go to DPP headquarters, but we met with senior. DPP and 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 it's public the, the president and the president elect both of whom are DPP leaders and then the KMT party chair at KMT headquarters who had so a, you got to see everybody we saw we saw everybody it really was um I have Except to say the, did you see the TPP people as well uh, you, you we did didn't. not yeah, yeah. Ross Prose was uh, busy uh, building a wall to Mexico <laughs> um, the loud sucking sound did I have that right <laughs> but um there was a painting above uh, above the um in the, in the formal meeting room of KMT headquarters. Which had Sun Yat-sen in front of a sea of people, and and if you look at the if you look at the sea of people, you realize it's an outline of of mainland China. 
So they they are you would not probably see that at DPP headquarters. I'm guessing, uh, even uh-huh. though we didn't visit, because the connection between Guangdong KMT and the mainland is so strong. Whereas okay, so let me it's not exist with DPP. Let let me t- uh, repeat back to you what I just heard, and you tell me if I got it wrong. The uh, uh, Chiang Kai Shek came to uh, to Taiwan when in 1925 or something 1926. Chiang Kai Shek after 1947-48. Oh, oh, it, was, it wasn't the until war. the complete victory of the. Yeah. Okay, so in the in the 40s, uh, and, and uh, at that time he still harbored hopes of going back and taking over the mainland until his death. Until his death in 1975. 1975, but. Between 1975 and yesterday, the, 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 the KMT in Taiwan realizes that it's a fantasy that they're actually going to take power on the, on the mainland. But they haven't lost the sense of unity with the mainland. And that's the basis on which they have this desire for, that's the kind of underlying cultural, ideological basis for which they want to have good relations with the mainland because they feel like we are all one Chinese people. Yeah, they would, they would for example, there, there are theories, it's a little unfair because it's, it's ascribing motives and conjecture, but there are theories that had the mainland offered them in the mid-1990s. So clear that the PRC was not going to go the way of the Soviet Union Taiwan was not going to be able to invade and victoriously take over Nanking or Beijing, that at that point had the mainlanders offered them, say, autonomy and, um, and, and, and KMT rule over, over Taiwan, that they would, have, they would have taken a deal like that. But of course, that didn't come to pass. And, and one real manifestation of this is in the infrastructure, because um, uh, we landed very early in the morning, got to the hotel, it was all dark out, and then the sun comes up, and we have, I'm, in the, I'm in the eighth floor of this beautiful hotel overlooking Taipei. And there are modern, gleaming skyscrapers. Like Taipei 101, for a brief moment, was the tallest building in the world before the Burj Khalifa overtook it. Mm. And, um, and there, are some ver- there are a lot of, sort of construction ongoing. It, it clearly has elements of Singapore in it. But then it also has some rather dilapidated Southeast Asian infrastructure. And part of this, I learned, um, is because... Uh, the KMT never intended to stay in Taiwan. It was always a backwater, and they were waiting for their return. It was a launch pad oh. to get back to the mainland. And only once they realized that this is probably where we're at for good did they begin to really make the economic investments to um, improve Taiwan. So but, Taiwan uh, is, a, is a mixture between... Uh, it's really a country in transition. And if 10 years ago, people would have potentially said, well, this is a bit second, third world-like, you wouldn't say that anymore today, but you would still say it's got it's got a bit of a ways to go, despite having you know, some extraordinary economic assets. And, you know, FDI, I think U.S. Taiwan FDI has doubled since 2018. I think it's 31 or $32 billion of U.S. FDI into Taiwan, 17 or 18 Taiwanese into the U.S. I mean, it's a growing economy. But I'm trying to get into the mind of somebody who's 50 years old, uh, born in the 70s, uh, a KMT, you're born to a KMT family, uh, you no longer have any real hope that the KMT is going to take over China because uh, the PRC is so powerful. And, uh, uh, but yet you maintain this uh, affiliation. What does it mean to you today? What are the, the, what's, what's the worldview of a, of, a, of a 50-year-old who knows that it's impossible to, to, 
to take over? Is it is it is it is it nationalism that's motivating them? And they have a they 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 the 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 communist Chinese and the and the KMT they share a nationalist vision, or is it something else? Uh, it's I think nationalist and cultural. I'll just give you one little vignette. It was an off the or on background meeting with a very senior KMT official, and uh, our colleague John Lee, who sits in Sydney, who's uh, been on uh, before you were co-host guest, right? Uh, at uh, he's been on this podcast. Very so, very very intelligent. Very guy. impressive. And he he asked of this KMT official. Uh, given uh, Australia's experience with the mainland and Australia's attempts to get into dialogue and rapprochement, reach out to the to PRC, and the PRC response being to slap down of the Australians, why do you believe that if Taiwan were to go the path of dialogue as you've laid it out with the mainland, things would go better? And basically the answer came down to, well, we understand that we're Chinese and you are not. Okay, so then the then the then the the follow up question is, what about Hong Kong? Because Hong Kong was supposed to be. I mean, uh, my well, if, I think that's, if I were if I were Taiwanese, I'm I know nothing yeah. about Taiwan, but it, I I would assume that the minute the the minute you, th- that we go to Belarus, we become Belarus. The Ch- and the Chinese get their hooks into us, then then we're slaves. Basically. Well, that explains the I think. I think that explains in part why TPP is now in its third term, which is unprecedented in Taiwanese but, but, history. I mean, how, that, would you, that how, how would you imagine? A, maybe, maybe I'm asking too much. But how would you imagine that came? I was there for a week, Mike. You can ask. Yeah, yeah so t- so I'll tell you. Take you inside the body. <laughs> so explain to me. Explain to me how a KMT person would respond to that. I, I, mean, I don't know. I think they would. I, I don't know. I think they would say that they can. That they can. Uh, they can manage it. I don't know. Yeah. That's a question. These, the, the, the but you know, history the, is littered with the uh, history is littered with the uh, the corpses of people who think like this, right? Yeah. When uh, when uh, I, I think of a Middle Eastern analogy, when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt unified with the with the Syrians in 1958, it was the Ba'ath Party in Syria that brought him in, and they just assumed that he would need them in order to rule Syria. Now, he probably did actually, but nobody can rule Syria anyway, so it's a whole other question. But but they they didn't even work any of this it, it was fascinating to me to see looking at it that they didn't even work any of the details out with him. Yeah. Cuz they just assumed that he would rely on them so much and that they that they were they were aligned so closely um that their that their future was secure. Yeah. And then and then he took over being an Egyptian leader, he wanted to control everything. Uh, their uni- unity meant unity under him, and and they were they were uh, they right. were immediately subordinated. I, I was uh, another thing I noticed in the news was this New Year's message from uh, from Xi Jinping, saying that 2024 will be the year of decision. Uh, basically, basically threatening to take over Taiwan by force. Should I read that statement as an effort to to influence the Taiwanese election? Was he? Uh, was it was it was he turning up the heat because he th- because he calculated that that would actually help out the the KMT? Uh, I don't know. I do know that that Taiwanese commentators are convinced that the um, the mainland obviously wants to shape their elections, and so there's massive meddling, interference, all the rest. And I suspect, although we didn't get into this too much, that a lot of the techniques that we're going to see in the U.S. in the coming years, if not this election cycle altogether, 
like I saw a great um, AI um, fake, deep fake of Ron DeSantis a few months ago, or you think he's delivering a message and it's really not him, or you might have seen Putin gave a press conference where Putin asked Putin a question. Um, <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. He was kind of amused, but I think he was, I also would have been sweating if I were the guy who came up with that idea because he didn't seem entirely thrilled by it. Um, and so um, there's there's enormous amounts of meddling. And I, I imagine given the links between the mainland and Taiwan, the amount of business exchanges that that country is also shot through by operatives and spies and you know prc actors and provocateurs but in the media you know the uh the the so there's a there's a there's a back and forth some have argued that that message she sought to deliver is not all that different than past messages and so um he didn't really put a timestamp on it he always urges in every meeting with biden or in these addresses that you know reunification is coming and um and decisions will be taken but uh, i read that whole speech i didn't think it as alarmist as maybe it got reported out mm. but it, i could be i mean again i'm not a i'm not an expert well, on chinese what affairs. what have the what have the chinese responses been to the dpp victory well um it hasn't changed i mean they they're they're of course probing but they've been probing since the pelosi visit in ways that they were not before i think the real marker to look for is president lies uh, uh inauguration speech which is which is considered to be a major uh, policy speech, very important one. So when we went with President Lai, I t- took the opportunity to ask him what he's going to say in his inauguration speech. And he answered, I'm on a tour of uh, the island now visiting all of my voters. And so in a way, it won't even be my speech. It'll be the voice of the people. And I thought, <laughs> that is a politician. He's a real politician. <laughs> Par excellence. He's yeah. a real politician. Uh, this and, is then, not, and then, of course, he This is actually the, a really real democratic country. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I thought to myself, that was beautifully. Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, they'd be proud. You know, George yeah. W. Bush. But... Uh, other than that, I you know we didn't, I didn't get anything out of him. So, but it's and it's considered to be something that he didn't give you the secrets they, that, that they'll be watching, and um and I think it'll be an intense moment in cross straight. When when is that happening? In May, they have a very long transition oh, period. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, surprisingly long. Huh. Okay, so we'll wait for May uh, May for that. Um, uh, were they how? Uh, why don't you give us your impressions of? Uh, main impressions about how they were discussing the 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 China threat. What were the main themes that they were developing with you? I'm talking about the DPP. Well, um, I'm not sure there's anything I can say there that's uh, that's um, appropriate for me to say. I I, I would um, I would say that in general. Um, the country is very focused on trying to preserve the status quo um, because they like their lives and it's a democracy and it's economically growing and viable. And um, the question is whether or not um, maintaining stability allows you to keep the status quo or whether or not China through salami slicing tactics is not so encroaching on the uh, Taiwanese ability to maneuver and exist that it begins to choke off Taiwan. I think that's a, they're not at that point, they're not quite like dramatically alarmed by it, but clearly 
China continues to change the rules and the baseline and shift the Overton window, if you will. Just while we were there, as a major story in the Taipei Times, saw the Chinese had reneged on an agreement they had negotiated over flight patterns in the Taiwan Straits related to those two outlying islands, Kinmen and Matsu, that are right up against the mainland. And so that was uh, just another small example to which the West essentially makes no response, but then changes the status quo. And you know, just to maybe offer an alternative to that, um, the U.S.-Philippine Defense Treaty, we publicly stated, I believe it was Secretary Pompeo, covers some of the disputed islands between the Philippines and and what PRC disputes. And so um, that's a flashpoint, but I think there's at least some informed opinion in Taiwan that believes there won't be a, 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 a Philippine-Chinese war because the, the U.S. US has offered those, that defense guarantee. Yeah. Which then begs the question, why are they so comfortable with strategic ambiguity, or aren't they, when it comes to U.S. policy on uh, Taiwan? I don't think that they want us talking about those issues too much, because it... Who's the they? The, the Taiwanese. Yeah. Um, I'd say that's probably the opinion of society, but... Um, and then, you know... Like, don't... The, 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 just make sure I understand what yeah. you're saying. Their attitude is, don't poke the bear. Don't poke the dragon yeah the dragon don't poke the dragon and don't rattle the cage because he might break out or burn us with so a just fire right just and yeah. and you know it's still while while prior to russia's invasion of ukraine some 80 percent of taiwanese public did not think that a war was anywhere on the horizon that's after the invasion of ukraine somewhere in the 60s mm. that still means like keep the status quo because we're not facing a a, a war but it does suggest there's some unease in society. Uh, so, uh, what are your? Um, what's the biggest thing you learned on this trip? Thing that really, your your single biggest. The Pacific's takeaway. a big ocean. <laughs> um, wow. I, you know, I'm I'm a little bit. Um, I mean, w- one thing that's also interesting, which I suppose I should have known, but Taiwan takes the same views on the South China Sea essentially so, as the mainland. So, so sometimes I, I. This is what I like about travel is that sometimes there are things that are, are really kind of obvious and that you you know from looking at the map. Uh, yeah. I, for instance, I, I actually know uh, that that Taiwan is close to J- Japan. But when you when you actually go to a place yeah. and you and you interact with people, you it, it means much more to you than just knowing it. You it, you, you can you can uh, you can weave that understanding yeah. into your interpretation of what's happening. I'd say um, one major takeaway is that for Taiwan to survive if it came to war, it would require the United States. That's an obvious point. But what I didn't appreciate is that Taiwan exercises its military unilaterally, not with the U.S., because, again, the mainland would consider that rather provocative, nor do they exercise with, you know, say, the Japanese self-defense forces. Um, so if... Taiwan's strategy is all right. In the opening day of a war, our 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 um, our air force is destroyed, or it's hard to maintain that, and we're in a struggle at sea. Even though they're putting submarines into the waters now, I think uh, they just have an indigenous submarine program. Again, a question if the KMT keeps that going. But if if the point is you have to fight with the Americans, unlike NATO, which is totally interoperable. Uh, there are going to be some, I think, coordination challenges between the U.S. and Taiwan. And that that self-imposed, perhaps wise, perhaps unwise, 
limitation on and if they, the military matters. If they changed it now and started, uh, that would be a major provocation to the PRC. Right. Whereas if we had been doing it since, say, you know, the Eisenhower days, it would just probably be considered just be normal. what we do. Right. I mean, we, we the, the, the North Koreans throw a huff when we, when we, uh, when we, uh, when we run exercises with the South Koreans, but that's just the way it's been done. Minus the brief pause when President Trump was in office. Okay, let's uh, imagine that uh, that China and uh, China and the United States go to war uh, over the Philippines. What's the position of the KMT? I don't know, um, and uh, that thought occurred to me. On the one hand, they need the U.S. because the U.S. is its security guarantor, and without the U.S., Taiwan is gone. On the other hand, I'm talking about the KMT. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, this is the KMT's yeah. calculus, the, though, the, too. The, the, I mean, the I'm KMT recognizes the, that Taiwan the, does not exist without the U.S. I mean, they're oblivious to that fact, and right. they, they they understand that. Um, and uh, uh, on the other hand, they also you know are Chinese and not Filipino, and so if the U.S. lost that would, war, would, is it your sense problem. that they would actually have divided loyalty? Would there be a would it cause unease for them? I suspect they're just I wouldn't. I, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, the other open question. It, 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 so it's not so, a silly question. There is a there is a possibility that nationalist sentiment, no, it, Chinese nationalist it, sentiment, it, would actually play a role in there. It could be. I mean, we went with Eric Chu, the head of the KMT. This could be a totally silly question, and I could have asked it, and he would have just immediately answered and batted away. I just don't know enough. But yeah. but it's a conundrum that occurred to me, and um, uh, but I didn't ask it in that meeting. The the other question I have, which is just because again, I'm I'm not. I'm not steeped in these issues. Given that 40 or 50% of the world's tanker traffic flows through the Taiwan Straits, I mentioned this to you the other day, I don't know if you can actually run a war without previously alerting commercial traffic that they have to stay out of the strait. I mean, when I vacation in North Carolina in the summer, I see tankers on the horizon every few minutes. That's nothing compared to the tanker traffic, presumably, in the Taiwan Straits. Or are you just sailing one day with your freight to Shanghai and you're like, up, oh, there's an amphibious landing <laughs> taking place and a military action. Well, if you the Russians to... alerted the Black Sea. You know, they, they regularly shut down the Black Sea through exercises and then shut down the northern part of the Black Sea in the days leading up to the war. So the full-scale invasion, I should say. So um, maybe that's how they would proceed. But I, I don't, you know, that that's at least a tell of some sort, one would think, um, of what's uh, what's happening there. Now, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, the topography of Taiwan's interesting because it's very mountainous. And um, really only the western seaboard is uh, suitable to an amphibious landing. The eastern part of the island is is like mountains jutting out of the ocean. So you cannot land there. Um, and I don't know. I'm I'm told that this advantages the defense rather than the offense. I don't know if that's the case. But, you know, the Taiwanese are watching what's happening in the world. They're very interested in UAVs now. Um, and they have a big, as I mentioned, indigenous submarine program, which might, some would argue, be a huge waste of money. I was going to ask you that. You said the KMT might shut it down? You mean the KMT, KMT parliament? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Why, why would they do that? Why? Uh, I'm not sure. Not because I'm not sure. I mean, my thinking would be it might be appropriate at, th at this stage. I mean, I, th I think maybe the investment is made and you just proceed a bit like the F-35. But it is very expensive to field a submarine. And um, I'm not sure how good they will be. That's mm -hmm. a genuinely open question. It's not a, not a statement. And uh, if you can field like four of these 
and they're sunk and that's a huge percentage of your military budget it's curtains you know whereas like the u.s still has an edge on submarine warfare over the so POC. maybe this, so maybe the smart thing is to is to put it all in drones. They're in the tritable systems that like you just get a ton blown out of the sky. But if you know some of them, okay. So operate. that so it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be that the KMT is soft but, but this, on China. This again, That's why they this again get gets at the point though that right. But this again gets at the point they don't know if the U.S. is going to come to their defense, and so they field some systems to fight alone if necessary. That if they were sure of U.S. support, maybe they you know, would make different investment decisions. And, you know, there is a natural symbiosis there. The Taiwanese are prepared to defend themselves at higher numbers if they believe the U.S. is willing to back them. If not, then their willingness to defend goes down substantially. Like the polling numbers are pretty clear about that. That's uh, th- that's th- universal. That's <laughs> universal around the, around the globe. And yeah. uh, that's what our, for lack of a better word, isolationists, need to realize they're the restraintists that we who who habitually say our allies need to do more yeah and our and allies the, will do more right but provided we we're there and the flip side they of won't that do more the, if we if we pull away they'll do a lot right less. and the flip side are the the sort of pollyannish liberal internationalists who who you know speak of universal values but aren't prepared to actually or can't because it's impossible for american power to meet those those statements and to actually ch- cash those checks and then when the bluff gets called suddenly american credibility is at stake and you know we've seen that as well when we talk a big game the bluff is called and then if the u.s doesn't act it makes people like in taiwan very nervous which is why in part they are very nervous about the outcome in ukraine because they think beijing is taking lessons from that yeah everybody's watching all right Peter all right Rao. thank you for next week uh, we thank will, you for i'll what, come on to talk what about you, what are you going to enlighten us on next week this maybe is, uganda Okay. Maybe uh, who knows Fantastic. the Arctic. Okay. All right. Uh, I look. I look forward to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Great show you've got, Mike. <laughs> it's the fastest growing podcast in the world. You know that? Uh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. a factoid. Yeah. And it not. It's not. It's it's actually the fastest growing in numbers, but also we we get very very high level. Uh, very very high level listeners, people with a lot of power and influence, and including probably. Techro here in Washington. They're going to be pulling out their hair at all the wrong facts I've stated over the past hour. But thanks for having me on the trip. Yeah, but there's a there's a there's a strategy behind all that. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye, and thank you.